All right, well, we might as well get open in prayer today. I'm not going to read a psalm because we have somebody special visiting that's going to play us a song here in a second. So uh, actually a couple songs. So we'll just get open in prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for allowing us the privilege of coming out into this beautiful green cathedral and meeting in your presence. And thank you for all the people that have shown up here today. And may you be glorified through what is said and how we conduct ourselves in your presence. You're a great and wonderful God. We love you. We praise you. You are due all the glory and all the honor that we could give you and so much more. We thank you for every blessing that comes down to us from your open hand of grace. And we want to just return it to you in praise and in worship and in a, a, a analysis of your word today. So may you be glorified through these things. And in all things, let us give you the praise and the honor and the glory through the exalted and wonderful and beautiful name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen.
Give thanks to the Lord, for He is good. His love endures forever, for He is good. He is above all things. His love endures forever. Sing praise, sing praise. With a mighty hand and an outstretched arm, His love endures forever. For His life that's been reborn, Love endures forever. Sing praise, sing praise, sing praise, sing praise. Forever, God is faithful. Forever, God is strong. Forever, God is with us forever. From the rising to setting sun, His love endures forever, by the grace of God we will carry on, His love endures forever, sing praise, sing praise, sing praise, sing praise, forever you are faithful. Uh, today is uh, Genesis 18 verses 1 through 15 that we're going to talk about. This is a time for laughter, the son of promise. But before we get into that, as I do every single week, I want to give you a little bit of this day in history. Today is 2 September, and on this day in history, in 31 September, uh, the Roman leader Octavian defeated the alliance of Mark Anthony and Cleopatra. And so Octavian as Augustus Caesar became the first Roman emperor. And you know, that uh, empire went on for a long time and eventually faded away. And uh, Bible scholars do believe that the European Union, which is now, is going to turn into a revived Roman empire during the end time. So all kind of fits in there. Uh, in 1666, the Great Fire of London broke out. It burned for three days. It destroyed 10,000 buildings and only six people were lost. Only six people died during that great fire. And then in 1775, this one I just think is wonderful, Hannah was the first American war vessel commissioned by General George Washington. And Hannah means grace. And if you know um, the Bible, that was the mother of the last judge of Israel, who was uh, Samuel the prophet. And uh, so anyway, they uh, chose a name for the first commissioned war vessel in America, Grace or Hannah. So uh, kind of a, a wonderful testament to the faith of the people back at that time. And then in 1935, on this day in history, and surprisingly, I saw somebody post this on uh, Facebook this morning, and I told her I'm going to be talking about that as well. There was a uh, hurricane that hit the Florida Keys, and 423 people were killed. So we look at Isaac last week where almost nothing happened, and I mean, up in uh, Louisiana, they got some flooding. I don't think, has there been any death at all in... in um, Debbie, I said, I said the wrong name, but yeah, okay. But very few losses of life 
Uh, my wife just went through a typhoon in Okinawa with 130 mile an hour sustained winds and 165 mile an hour winds. And as far as I know, there was no loss of life on that island. Um, there was, I think, on a smaller island somewhere. But uh, things have really changed since the days where they went and put up wooden shacks and uh, lived in fishing villages. So uh, we can be thankful for modern weather techniques and forecasting and uh, uh, modern building codes and all that kind of stuff. But anyway, that's this day in history from 2 September. And now we're going to speak on a time for laughter, the son of promise. And to remind you, last week was the promised son, a time for laughter. So I'm working towards the birth of Isaac in these uh, two or three sermons here. And uh, before I actually get into the sermon, I want to remind you that I suppose that I quote Acts 17:28 as much as any other verse in the Bible. My favorite verse is Hebrews 12:2, but Acts 17:28 is a constant reminder to me that the Lord is always near and that he is always there for me. And you can remember this as well, that the Lord is always right there for you. And he, he's not far from you by any stretch of the imagination. He's there ready to respond to my needs, and yet he's also watching over all of my actions, both good and bad. This particular verse says, in him we live and move and have our being. God is right here, right now with us. He's around us and we're living in his presence. He's going to be checking out my sermon doctrine today. And he's going to be checking out the heart of every person that's here during the sermon, after the sermon, before the sermon. He is there evaluating our lives and how we live in his presence. He's aware of every person out here on the beach. He's aware of every bird in the air. He's aware of every cricket that is eventually going to start making noises and interfering with the audio of the video that happens every single week. There's nothing that God does not know, not just on this world, but on a billion, billion constellations filled with billions of stars. He knows everything that is going on right now. He knows about that airplane that's also uh, interfering with uh, what I'm saying as well. But because we cannot see him, he's not something that we can visibly see, it is easy for us to forget that he's there. It's easy to come away with the notion that he doesn't really see this time. This time he's not going to see my actions. But the question is, what if there was someone who was right there next to us that we could see? And we had a sneaky suspicion that this person was checking out our actions. There's a study that was done years ago. I saw it on uh, some TV program. Uh, it, it shows that we tend to act differently when uh, people are present. Uh, what it was is they had a hidden camera in a bathroom. And when people would come out of the stall, if there was somebody else in the bathroom, then people tended to wash their hands. But if there was nobody else in the bathroom, they'd just zip up and zip out, and that was the end of uh, their uh, time in the bathroom. And so this is something that shows us that we do tend to change our actions when somebody is physically present next to us. And so we need to remember that, that the next time we're in the bathroom, somebody actually may have a hidden camera on us. So <laughs> wash your hands when you leave the stall. There are times in the Bible when people receive angelic visitations. And there are times, even now, where that happens. And if you think that I'm just making that up for, for uh, common talk, that's not it at all. It says in Hebrews 13:2, do not forget to entertain strangers, for by doing so, some have unwittingly entertained angels. Now, how many of you would change the way that you lived your life and the things that you did 
if you knew that there were angels right there with you? And how would your actions be affected differently in that case? And what if it was the Lord Jesus in your presence? How would your actions be affected then? I don't mean the seeming invisible, impersonal way that Acts describes God. You know, he's in him, we live and move and have our being, but we can't see him. I'm talking about the Lord standing right there in the form of a man, the Lord with arms, the Lord with hands, the Lord with a face, the Lord with eyes, eyes that see your every move. How then would you act? Here's our text verse from the day, and it comes from the book of Leviticus. And yes, Leviticus has wonderful things in it as well. It's Leviticus 26, verse 12. It says, I will walk among you and be your God, and you shall be my people. God has appeared in human form, and he didn't just do this for 30-some years, about 2,000 years ago. He has walked in the presence of man since the time of Adam, and he continued to do so throughout the ages as the Bible clearly demonstrates. And so may God speak to us through his word today, and may his glorious name ever be praised. Our first thought today is that the Lord walks among his people. In Deuteronomy 23, we read these words from Moses before Israel entered the promised land. This is Deuteronomy 23, verses 12 through 14. Also, you shall have a place outside the camp where you may go out, and you shall have an implement among your equipment. And when you sit down outside, you shall dig with it and turn and cover your refuse. For the Lord your God walks in the midst of your camp to deliver you and give your enemies over to you. Therefore, your camp shall be holy, that he may see no unclean thing among you and turn away from you. Some scholars look at this particular set of verses and they say it's only speaking of the Lord's presence in a non-physical way. In other words, he's spiritually present in the camp of Israel, but he's not physically there. And yet this has to be inferred and it has to overlook the physical aspects of what is being said by Moses in those verses. Yes, at the other uh, times throughout the Bible, it says it speaks metaphorically about God, such as the right arm of God or the right hand of God. But this particular set of verses is far more specific and far harder to dismiss. It is very similar to when the Lord appeared to Adam in the Garden of Eden. Here's what it says from chapter 3 of Genesis. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Unless you're simply not willing to believe the text as written, and I can tell you there are many denominations that don't teach that this is literally God walking in the garden. There are many scholars that do that, and most cults will do that because it disturbs their theology. But unless you're willing to just disregard what it says, you have to admit that the Lord truly did walk in the garden. He walked right there. He walked among the Israelites as they encamped uh, in war formation, and he walked right up to Abraham, as we're going to see in today's sermon. The text demands this as literal, and nothing else is possible, as we're going to see in the coming verses. And that brings us to verse 1 of chapter 18. The Lord appeared to him this is speaking about Abraham. Then the Lord appeared to him by the terebinth trees of Mamre as he was sitting in the tent door in the heat of the day. Now, God does not have parts. And if you want to understand this, you can go back on the uh, YouTube channel and you can watch my early sermons in Genesis. Genesis 1, 1, Genesis 1, 2. I talk about the nature of God. The Bible bears that out as well. God doesn't have any parts. 
I mentioned this in a sermon just a couple weeks ago, that God is spirit, that no one is seeing God, that he dwells in an unapproachable light, etc. Verses like that in the Bible. And it also says on several occasions, both Old Testament and New, that God is unchanging. And that includes Jesus speaking of him in, I believe it's Hebrews 13, 8. It says Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. But it also says that Jesus does change, such as growing in wisdom and in stature and in favor with God and men. And so we have a mystery. It is the mystery of the incarnation. God, who is outside of his creation and unchanging, cannot take on parts and remain eternal and unchanging. Therefore, we are left with only one possibility. With Adam, with Abraham, and these other times that I'm talking about, that the Lord here in this particular verse is Jehovah God, according to this verse, and he is the physical manifestation of God, which is Jesus. Now, this might not be a popular view. As I said, many scholars would dismiss this, but it is the logical one. Jesus himself is the master of time and space, and he is here, right with Abraham, as he has been several times already in Genesis, and as he will be throughout the Old Testament, appearing in his own history, and he's directing human events which lead right to himself. And we're going to see it grow, these, this concept of Jesus appearing in his own history. The Lord, L-O-R-D, which is all caps in your Bible, and that means Jehovah, appeared to Abraham. It then says he did so by the terebinth trees of Mamre, and then it says that he did it during the heat of the day. These are all physical descriptions, and they demand a bodily appearance. When the Lord came, Abraham was sitting in the tent of the door. Now, this is the prime spot which is occupied even to this day. If you go over to Israel, you'll see these people, the head of the household, sitting in the tent of the door. These dwellers in the region are sitting there watching the world go by, but there's another reason why. It's because they're sitting there sweating in the heat of the day, but then a breeze might come by, and it hits their uh, sweating skin, and it's like a form of air conditioning. It is the earliest and the longest form of air conditioning in the world, and guess what? Abraham was a pioneer of the technique. So we come to verse 2. So he lifted his eyes and looked, and behold, three men were standing by him. And when he saw them, he ran from the tent door to meet them, and he bowed himself to the ground. Abraham has already met the Lord on several occasions, and he knows exactly who it is when they come up to meet him. As soon as he saw him, he ran up to them, and he made the customary bow of obeisance, which I described in detail a few sermons back. And he does it showing worship to the Lord and the Lord receives it as such. This has to be sometime very soon after our last account, which we talked about last week, the uh, circumcision of Abraham's household, because the males, if you remember, were to be circumcised, and then after that, the Lord promised that it would be at the same time the following year that Isaac would be born. Abraham obeyed, he circumcised the entire household, and the Lord is now returned after his display of obedience brings us to verse 3 and said my lord if i have now found favor in your sight do not pass by your servant abraham only addresses one of the three he knows exactly which one is the lord and it is to him alone that he's speaking the context demands that this is none other than jehovah mentioned in verse 1 and he is completely aware of this fact when he speaks to him he says something that will occur many many more times in the bible if I have now found favor in your sight. Or sometimes it'll say, if I have now found favor 
in your eyes. It is what we would say today, something like, if you really want to please me, then, and then you tell them what you want. In this case, it is that they don't just pass by, but come and be his guests before moving on. And the specifics are found in the next verse, which is verse four. Please let a little water be brought and wash your feet and rest yourselves under the tree. And I will bring a morsel of bread that you may refresh your hearts. After that, you may pass by inasmuch as you have come to your servant. Abraham, as we've seen in the past couple chapters, is an immensely wealthy man. And his words here are words of extreme modesty. They fit the customs and the pious nature of the people of God. He offers just a little bit of water to be brought to wash their feet. And then he says, you can go rest under the trees in the cool of the shade. And while relaxing, he says that he's gonna bring them just a, a morsel of bread. Instead of bragging about some big feast that he might offer, he, he brings it in in a very subtle and calming way. And this thought is found, believe it or not, in the book of Proverbs. And it shows that Solomon's wisdom is built on these modest customs. Here's what it says from the book of Proverbs chapter 23. When you sit down to eat with a ruler, consider carefully what is before you and put a knife to your throat. If you are a man given to appetite, do not desire his delicacies, for they are deceptive food. When someone boasts about the meal that they're giving you, their offer is often much more than, no, not much more than just a pretense. There is a huge difference between somebody saying, you're at the same table, you got a table full of food, and the person says, come and sit at my modest table, or a person saying, come and eat from the bounty of my wealth. You know, the table is the same, but the spirit of dining is gonna be vastly different. And that is what Abraham is showing that pious nature of the people of God. Verse five continues. They said, do as you have said. The guests here agree to his offer in a simple exchange of words. And it is beautiful. When I typed this, it just, it really turned me, my, my hair was almost standing on when I, when I was contemplating this. The same Lord who accepted a meal from Abraham stands and he waits for the offer to be extended from each one of us. He's looking for that invitation. The opportunity may come only once in a lifetime, but when it does, we need to be ready to respond. It is a standing offer once it's made, but the only way to receive it is to open the door, just as Abraham opened his home here. Jesus tells us about this in the book of Revelation. He says, behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in to dine with him and he with me. And I would hope that each person here will respond properly when the sound of the knock comes. The Lord of creation does not force himself on his creatures. As amazing as it is, he allows us the choice to either choose life or choose death. And I would ask you to choose wisely. And that brings us to our second thought today, which is the Lord dines with his people. Verse six, so Abraham hurried into the tent to Sarah and said quickly, Make ready three measures of fine meal, knead it and make cakes. He was probably so excited about the guests and the promise that it says that he hurried into his tent. This guy is 99 years old right now. And I can just imagine him skipping like a teenager. He is about to serve a meal to the creator. And he knows this and he's skipping. He's hurrying into the tent. And his words to Sarah are just as urgent as his steps. It says that he asked her to quickly make things ready. 
unlike today, you know, we have refrigerators, and I can testify to this right now is that Kelly Carlin has a freezer too, and uh, uh, my wife is gone, and I'm just going to stop for a minute and thank her because she gave me a big chicken to dine on while my wife is gone, and uh, so uh, kind of fits in with what we're talking about here. But uh, we have these refrigerators, we have freezers, we have microwaves. They didn't have those kind of things. So to prepare a meal like he is proposing right now will take a great deal of time and effort. And what he tells Sarah to make is not just a little morsel of bread, as he indicated. It is about three times as much as all of them can eat in a single day. Despite being humble about his offering, the bread alone is truly a banquet that's fit for a king, and there is more to come. Verse 7, And Abraham ran to the herd, took a tender and good calf, gave it to a young man, and he hastened to prepare it. Not only did he have Sarah whip together the biggest loaf of bread in town, but he pulled out of his flock a good and tender calf as well. Abraham, knowing the circumstances, probably picked the very best lamb in the entire flock. And there's a lesson in this verse that we should remind ourselves about. It is a truth that we face in our meals every single time we eat, and yet it's something that we very infrequently think about, if at all. In order to live, something else must die. What the world of vegetarians see as brutal and savage is actually a picture of our own salvation. And I hate to tell vegetarians, but if you eat a carrot, the carrot is dying as well. It doesn't matter what you're eating. Something is dying in order for you to live. And on a spiritual level, there had to be death in order for us to be brought back to life. When without Jesus' cross, without him dying on that cross, we would remain spiritually dead and in our sins. But because of his death, we now have an opportunity and a chance to receive life. And that's not just life for another eight hours until our next meal, but it is eternal life, life that will never, never end. So please think about that as we continue on today. We come to verse eight. So he took butter and milk and the calf which he had prepared and he set it before them. Bread, butter, milk, and a calf. It is quite a bit more than a morsel of bread which he had spoken about when they came to him. If you want to know how much food this actually was, I'm going to read you a quote from a guy named Abby Fleury. Here's what he says. We have an instance of a splendid entertainment in that which Abraham made for the three angels. He set a whole calf before them, new bread, but baked on the hearth together with butter and milk. Three measures of meal were baked into bread on this occasion, which come to more than two of our bushels and to nearly 56 pounds of weight. 56 pounds of bread plus calf, butter, and a milk is a whole lot of food. And my guess is they had to have a take-home bag when they left. Verse 8 continues. And he stood by them under the tree as they ate. And i got to admit to you, I've read this story dozens and dozens and dozens and dozens of times over the years. And every time I read it, I have to laugh to myself. Here's Abraham, and he's just standing there. He's probably pulling on his beard, and he's watching these three eat. And I get this mental picture, and I laugh every time I read it. Don't mean to make light of it, but it's just something that pops into my head. Anyway, the customs of the Middle East and the people that live there, it is not considered at all menial for the chief of a household to prepare and to serve a meal. And in not doing this, it would actually be a breach of respect because they, you know, he, he's standing there in order to be ready to meet their every need. And if he is not there, then 
in the culture of the Mideast, it would be considered disrespectful. So what he's doing is actually something that is of great respect. And these verses right here, what he is doing and the way he's doing it, the meal he's providing and then standing there as they eat, ought to bring up an obvious inspection of our own lives. He not only brought out the finest and the best, but he brought out much, much more than was necessary as well. And the question that each one of us has to individually evaluate in our own lives is this, how much of what I can give to the Lord do I actually give? And I'm not talking about just money. Money keeps things going, it pays for bills at churches and you know it provides supplies overseas. But how much of what I can give? Money, praise, when you're driving down the road, do you just praise the Lord for the things that you see as you pass by? When you're walking, do you see a beautiful flower and do you give him the praise? All day long, all day long. This is what we should be doing as human beings. That is an act of showing love for the Lord and not just money and not just praise, but what about worship? Which is tied up in praise, but it's something that comes directly from the heart and it's asking to commune with God. And some people that I know are more worshipful than others, but their whole life seems to be tied in to the power of the Spirit, and they're continuously just relying on that. Bad things happen, and they just continue to praise God, as Job did. So this is something that, that we need to think about in our lives. Are we giving the money that we can give? Are we giving the praise that we can give? Are we giving the worship we can give? And what about time? Because time is a much, much more valuable commodity than money is. I don't care what anybody says, if you think it through, you're not gonna make money unless you're expending your time. And if you just whittle away your time, you might make a little bit of money. And if you use your time wisely, you might make millions and millions or billions of dollars. Time is a most valuable commodity. And are we spending time honoring the Lord? Are we doing mission work? Are we, as uh, Doris over here just got back from the Dominican Republic, are these things that we are offering to the Lord? And one final thing that I'd like to have you think about is personal inconvenience because Abraham was 99 years old and he's standing in the heat of the day in order to serve the Lord. He wasn't having one of his 318 fighting men or any of the women or any of the younger people or older people doing it. He was doing it personally. And if you have the money to pay somebody else to do your worshiping or your work for you, for the Lord, you're not really doing anything. But Abraham was willing to do this. So I would ask each person to give given an abundance and give personally, just like Abraham did. This man of faith was not only known for his faith, but he was known for his deeds as well. And so we need to, and I mean this absolutely sincerely, we need to be not only people of faith, but people of deeds of faith as well. As a kind of side note to this meal though, and especially in this world in which we live, which is spiraling right down to the insane. Yes, Jesus did eat meat okay and i bring this up for a reason is because there are denominations there are bible diets there are all kinds of crazy things that say that we shouldn't be eating meat and some actual cults that are within you know outside of mainstream christianity say you can't drink coke or you can't eat pork or you can't do this or that or one thing or another the further you get away from what paul proclaims in the new testament the further you get away from christianity and the fact is that Jesus Christ ate meat. He didn't do it just in the New Testament, but he did it in the Old Testament as well. I wanna read you something from the Huffington Post, which was published on 3 September of 2009. It was written by a knucklehead named Kamran Pasha, 
all right? It's, was Jesus a vegetarian? Here's what he says. Indeed, human beings throughout history have questioned the morality of animal slaughter and religious traditions, uh, that animal slaughter and religious traditions such as Hinduism and Buddhism have long been the home for those who believe that killing and consuming sentient animals is barbaric. Now, first off, he's trying to elevate Eastern religions above Western religions by what he's saying. Secondly, nobody questions the uh, basis of animal slaughter, especially in religious traditions. I don't care what religion it is. And thirdly, he's completely taken this wrong because I've lived in Buddhist countries and I can tell you they eat as much or more meat than we do. If it's available, they will eat it. So he's taken this completely and he's trying to twist people's minds about uh, uh, our freedom to eat meat. Then he goes on and he says, religious vegetarianism is commonplace in the East. Now that's not true at all. In Hinduism, they don't eat certain meats, but they, eat, they do eat mutton and they do eat other things. But it says it's commonplace in the East, but not considered mainstream in most Western faith communities. Well, that's because most Western faith communities are biblically based communities and the Bible authorizes us to eat anything. That goes all the way back to Genesis, I believe it was 9-6, God ordained that we can eat anything. Then in the law, he took out certain things for a certain group of people, and after the law, we're ordained to eat anything we want as, again. He goes on and he says, and yet after lengthy research into the historical record, I have become convinced that Jesus Christ himself was in all likelihood a vegetarian and that vegetarianism was probably a central tenet of the early Christian community founded by his disciples. In fact, there is evidence that Christ's opposition to animal sacrifice, wait a minute, Christ instituted animal sacrifices. He wrote the law. Yeah. So his opposition to animal sacrifice at the Jewish temple may have been the triggering event that led to the crucifixion. Yes, I know this sounds preposterous, and he goes on for pages on this stupid article. Preposterous. This is one of the most insane articles that I've ever read in my life. Only a dolt, or I'll tell you what, only a subdolt could come to this conclusion. This person did absolutely no research at all. Instead, he lied his way all the way through the entire article, and people are still commenting on it three years later. It is it is absolutely insane. So just pay attention when you read your Bible and do not be swayed. If you don't want to eat meat, don't eat meat. But if you feel that you are obligated to not eat meat because of the Bible, you have been misled by somebody that has an agenda. And if you get in any of these crazy biblical diets, the Daniel diet, the Ezekiel diet, the, you know, the Jewish whatever diet, these things are not realistic. And they have been taken out of context and they're trying to make money off of you. So please just pay attention to these things. We'll go on to verse nine. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? So he said, here, in the tent. Now, if you want to elevate a friendship, you have a meal with that person. Last night, I elevated my friendship with a couple people sitting here. So it, that's what you do. It is where the impersonal becomes personal. It is where the hidden matter becomes evident. And it is where alliances are made. It's where secrets are revealed. And it's where bonds grow strong. Having a meal together, particularly in somebody's home, but also, you know, at a, a nice cozy restaurant, is as close to intimacy as we can get outside of a husband-wife relationship, which the Bible authorizes. The Lord has come, the Lord has eaten, and the Lord has been intimate with his good friend Abraham. And the Lord now asks about Sarah, who is actually the person that this meeting was principally designed to highlight. 
This is like watching a movie and not knowing who the main actor is until some certain point later in the movie when you suddenly get surprised and say, oh, I know what's going on now. Abraham has been given the promise already and he has been obedient. But through the entire narratives from chapter 13 all the way up to here, Sarah has been on the fringes of the narrative. But now she comes into focus as the lens focuses in, it directs on her. And how do we know this? Because of the question, it is absolutely direct. Where is Sarah, your wife? The Lord asks for her by name. This can only mean that the entire visit centered around her all of the time. And the formalities of the culture were merely relaxing and yummy way stations on the way to this destination. Abraham's answer to the question is that she is here in the tent. And it means that she is close enough to hear every word of the conversation. It is purposeful and it is intended to let them know that they can call her if they want, but she is aware of everything that's being said. Verse 10, and he said, I will certainly return to you according to the time of life and behold, Sarah, your wife shall have a son. Sarah was listening at the tent of the door, which was behind him. She's kind of eavesdropping. The Lord promises to return according to the time of life. And this does not specifically mean that the Lord is going to show back up at the time of Isaac's birth, but he will come in the sense of fulfilling the promise that's being made. The question is, and this is my question to you, what does it mean when he says according to the time of life? I'm going to give you three possibilities. And the reason why is because I have no idea what it means. One possibility is that it will be at the same time next year, meaning 12 months from that point. Or it could be that it will be the normal duration of a pregnancy, which will happen as soon as Abraham gets busy and gets to work, and then nine months later, the child will come. Or there's one more possibility, and that means that it is during the spring of the year, when life springs back into its productive cycle. Those are the only three things I can think of about this, and I have no idea, so you choose. Our third thought today, the Lord knows his people intimately. Our first thought is the Lord walks among his people. Our second thought was the Lord dines with his people. And now we know that the Lord knows his people intimately. Verse 11, now Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age, and Sarah had passed the age of childbearing. We already knew this kind of from 13 years before. She's barren. It was when Sarah or Sarai at the time uh, offered Abraham her maidservant, Hagar. However, the Bible is repeating this and it's refining it so that we know that what is coming is nothing other than divine intervention. By this time in human history, a woman who is 89 years old is too old to bear. Verse 12, therefore Sarah laughed within herself saying, after I've grown old, shall I have pleasure? My Lord being old also? She laughs at the announcement. But this is not a laugh like Abraham laughed when he was told about the coming son. Instead, the Bible makes a distinction. It says that she laughed within herself. In other words, she went, Pfft. you know, she probably made a scrunchy face when she made the noise too. She's, she's doubting what she's been told. Her doubt and laughter is made clear in her words. And they don't just implicate her barren state, but they also implicate or attempt to implicate Abraham in this by saying that he's too old. But the miracle is in her womb. It's not in his seed. It is a picture that is repeated several more times in the Bible, including Hannah, which we mentioned at the beginning of this sermon. She was also barren. Rachel was barren. Um, or Rachel, what was it? Rachel had a tough time having children. Rebecca had a tough time having children. Samson's mother, uh, the wife of Manoah, same thing. 
It's going to be repeated throughout the Old Testament, but it is going to point to the greatest miracle of all, which is the conception of Jesus Christ in Mary's womb. Sarah's doubt here is going to be replaced with Mary's faith in the New Testament. And the Son of God is going to fill the world with laughter and with joy, not incredulity such as happened to Sarah. With God, all things are possible. But to Sarah's credit, she says something in this verse for which she is remembered favorably for, even in the New Testament. It's recorded in the book of 1 Peter. It's in chapter 3. It's something I read to you last week under a different context. But here's what it says. For in this manner, in former times, the holy women who trusted in God also adorned themselves, being submissive to their own husbands as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord. And she's noted for that. It's good to know that when God forgives a transgression, such as Sarah made a second ago, that he takes that sin and he throws it as far as the east is from the west. But our noble deeds are remembered for all eternity, and he adorns us with blessing because of those deeds. Verse 13, then the Lord said to Abraham, why did Sarah laugh saying, shall I surely bear a child since I'm old? Is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you according to the time of life and Sarah shall have a son. Jehovah speaks, words are coming out of his mouth. There is no other possibility left in this account than this is God incarnate, it is Jesus. The name Jehovah belongs solely to the Lord and not a created being. And because God is unseen, this is Jesus. No other possibility exists. His words show both his omniscience, meaning his unlimited knowledge, and they show his omnipotence, meaning his all power. His omniscience is seen when Sarah laughs and she speaks silently silently to herself, but her words are as if they've been shouted from the rooftops. And they are words that were hidden. They were kept away from what, in other words, we have these words in the Bible, but they weren't said out loud. But God searches the hearts and the minds of his people. He does that in the Old Testament, and he does that in the New Testament. But in the New Testament, it is ascribed to the ability of Jesus. And his omnipotence, his power, is seen in his exclamation, Hayepale me Yehovah Dabar. Is anything too hard for Jehovah? The question is rhetorical, and it demands a negative response. Nothing. Oh, nothing is too hard for Jehovah. Behold, I am the Lord, the God of all flesh. Is there anything too hard for me? Why, I spoke the universe into existence. This child will come, Sarah. Just wait and see. Verse 15. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid. And he said, no, but you did laugh. Sin comes at us from all different angles, and I think everybody here knows that. It's always seizing the opportunity to come out of words and out of actions. Sarah sins for a second time. First she left in disbelief at the promise of the Lord, and then she lies. One sin often leads to another, and in this case, it was a sin because of fear. Sarah was afraid. The Lord showed that he knew what was otherwise unknowable, and she recoiled from it. And this doubt is not unique in the world. Instead, it is the standard. God has spoken out the pages of the Bible, which verify beyond a shadow of a doubt that he is aware of all things. But we sin by denying his word, even in the face of overwhelming evidence. The Bible is absolutely accurate 
and all that it details, and we are left without any excuse at all. But out of fear, fear because of our own sin, we tried to hide the evidence and deny that it really contains what it contains. Fortunately for Sarah, this is her final moment of unbelief. She's moving from darkness and into light. She's moving from lies and into the truth. And it is recorded in the book of Hebrews chapter 11. The 11th verse says, By faith Sarah herself also received strength to conceive seed. And she bore a child when she was past the age, because she judged him faithful whom had promised. Matthew Henry says that one sin commonly brings in another, and it is not likely we shall strictly keep the truth when we question the divine truth. Fortunately for Sarah, her failure to keep the truth passed behind her, and she now does stand on that divine truth, as we have recorded in the book of Hebrews. Some of us here, maybe somebody watching on the video, might be hiding from the truth in an order to attempt to deny the divine truth. One lie compounding upon another. This can only lead to eternal sadness, but there is a way that we can put these things behind us. Let me tell you how you can exchange this body of death, which is brought on by our own sins for life, which is brought on by Jesus' death. I talked about eating a meal and something had to die to keep us alive. Let me give you just two minutes explaining why Jesus' death was important. The Bible says that we have sinned. Each and every one of us has committed an offense against God. And a, a sin committed in time, a finite sin, infinitely separates us from an infinite creator. There's no way that we can bridge the gap and go back to where we were before that sin and make it up. Time is moving forward. So what Jesus, what God did in the person of Jesus is he stepped out of eternity and into time itself. And he became flesh. He, the infinite united with the finite. And he lived the law that we cannot live. He never sinned and he never inherited his father Adam's sin. And so he was qualified to take away our sin by giving his life in exchange for it. And he did. He gave his life on a cross and he said that it is finished just as he died on that cross, meaning that the law is done, the debt is paid for anybody who calls on the name of Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior. That's all he asks of you. That's all he asks is to simply believe that you cannot save yourself, that he can do it for you, and to call on him as Lord. Paul says that if you believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Well, nobody calls on a dead Lord. So the resurrection is tied up in calling on him as Lord. Once you've called on him as Lord, you will last forever just as he will last forever because he is eternal and we will have eternal life and fellowship with God because of what he did. So please keep that in mind. If you've never accepted Jesus Christ's offer of payment, accept it today. That's what I would ask of you. I got one more thing to read you. I do this every week. It's a poem on the particular verses that uh, we went through. This is Genesis 18, 1 through 15, and I call it a time for laughter. The Lord appeared to Abraham in the heat of the day near the terebinth trees of Mamre as he sat by the tent door. While he was sitting, the Lord passed by that way and the Lord came with others. Yes, there were two more. Abraham lifted his eyes in order to see the sight and behold, three men were standing close by. So he got up to meet them, filled with delight. To them, hospitality, he would not deny. Bowing himself to the ground in respect complete, he asked them to stay if he had found favor in their sight. Let me bring water and let me wash your feet and you can rest under the tree 
this spot here, it's just right. I will bring you a morsel of bread refreshing to the heart, and then you may pass by. Yes, then you may depart. You have come to your servant. Please stay to break bread. And the response came with a smile. Do as you have said. He instructed Sarah to make ready three seahs of fine meal. And then he ran to the herd and took a good and tender calf. He whipped together a banquet and he did it with great zeal. He went all out for them, an entire measure, not just a half. So he took bread, butter, and milk and the calf he had prepared. And he set it before them to eat as he stood and stared. Then they said to him, where is Sarah, your wife? He pointed to the place here in the tent. I will certainly return to you according to the time of life. And behold, she shall have a son, though her years seem spent. She was lying. She was behind him, listening at the tent's door, trying to account for what had happened heretofore. Both Abraham and Sarah were old, well advanced in age. And Sarah had passed the time for bearing a child. And she laughed within herself, a laugh of doubtage. I have grown old, and what I hear to me is certainly wild. And the Lord said to Abraham, yes, he did say, why did Sarah laugh? Why did she show dismay? Is there anything too hard for the Lord? I will return according to the time of life, and then you will see the truth in my word. You will have a son, yes, a son from Sarah, your wife. But Sarah denied it, saying, I did not laugh, for she was afraid and she told a lie. But he saw through her words and her awkward gaff because with the Lord nothing is hidden from his eye. Mercy is found in the Lord, whether from one sin or a lot. If we accept his pardon, our relationship he will restore. And in his eternal home, there he will reserve a spot, and he will safely lead us along to that distant shore. So let us give him all the glory he is due for the gift of eternal life granted to me and to you. Hallelujah and amen. Heavenly Father, Thank you for the life and times of Abraham and Sarah, the people of faith who are noted as such even to this day in your word. And thank you for forgiving their faults as you will forgive our faults when we trust with all of our heart that you are God and that you can lead us to that distant shore. Lord, we just love you and we praise you. We thank you for the opportunity to look into your word and see the treasures which are hidden there. Thank you for the music that uh, Paul played today and one more song that's coming. And we thank you for this beautiful spot that you've picked out for us. And uh, I ask that you bless each person here today, whatever their needs are, whatever their uh, desires are, whatever their um, hopes are, that you will fulfill them in them so that they know that it came from you and that they will turn around and give you the praise and the honor and the glory. I pray these things in the name of our exalted and glorious Savior, Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen. Is anything too difficult for the Lord? I was thinking a lot that this morning as you were um, talking about that, Charlie, and um, there's definitely nothing too difficult. And I think about what he did um, on the cross uh, for us and um, that the tomb couldn't hold him and that by believing in him we could have everlasting life. It's really uh, the most awesome gift that we can have. So. Um, I heard this song um, actually at our church uh, a few months ago. Amy and I live in the mountains of North Carolina, and uh, there's a lot of uh, bluegrass gospel, and it's different music that uh, that I had not played. But um, there was a group that came and did uh, what they call a singing at our church, and it was really beautiful, this particular song. And I said, gosh, I really need to learn that song. And I got a CD, and I listened and listened, and just the Lord really put it on my heart. So um, Charlie had a chance to 
to listen to it a few months back and so um, I just think it goes along with the, the message today so <clears throat> On a hill called Calvary, Jesus, my Lord, suffered for me. Carried the cross all the way, my sins be atoned. Then they nailed him to the cross. Great was the pain and the loss. Suffered it all.